this is a series why I'm not. And I decided, you know, I use these scales at work. I might as well bring these scales and use them at class. So we've got a little, um, uh, what would call, call this? Uh, show and tell. Uh, yeah, demonstrative. We have, that's what it is in court. We have a demonstrative, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the key. We're looking in this series at why I'm not, and it's sure taken a different stroke than I thought it would when we started. I was going to spend two weeks on why I'm not an agnostic. We're in week six. I suspect I'll finish it next week with week seven, but if you're going to do something, do it right. And there's no way to explain why I'm not an agnostic in two 45-minute sessions. There's just too many reasons I'm not an agnostic to cover in two 45-minute sessions. And so we've talked about why I'm not an atheist, why we're not Buddhist, but, but agnostics is what we've been looking at. And the agnostics are the ones who can't decide whether the evidence that there is a God is sufficient when weighed against the evidence there's not. Now, I'm going to challenge our camera crew to figure out how to get this where we can put it up where everybody can see it. Oh, they're already on top of it. But these are scales. Because in a courtroom or, or in any process of decision making, when you try to make a decision of what you want to believe, what you have to do is weigh the evidence on one side against the evidence on the other. So we can take the scales and weigh the evidence for the idea that there is a God on one side against the evidence and the concept that there is no God and that's on the other side. Are you able to sort of see that at least through the picture? Okay, so that's what we've been doing. The agnostics can't decide whether there's sufficient evidence to believe there's a God. And I've told everybody in here, we're not looking at science per se because God's not a part of nature and science is the way we understand nature and the natural order. God is outside of nature. But that doesn't mean that there are not real things we can use to help us figure out, is there in fact a God? One of the things we've talked about early on is the idea that all, almost everyone has within them, even if they don't want to admit it intellectually, this sense that there really is such a thing as right and wrong, that those words have a meaning outside of who we are and what we want to give them. And so someone may, uh, you know, we, we can convict a criminal for um, uh, rape and the criminal may say, well, that wasn't wrong to me. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, objectively, we deemed it wrong, not simply, though, because society said so. I don't have time to rehash those lessons. And I can tell you, if you want to go back and watch them on the Internet or read them, that those are all reasons for me to put in the scales on the side of there's a God. It explains why right and wrong is there. Beauty, objective beauty is used by a lot of people to argue for the idea that, that there is a God. Or some argue for symmetry, showing there's a God. And I can see why objective beauty is consistent with God. But to me, it's also consistent with no God. And so I don't use objective beauty in the scales at all. If I did, I'd put it equally in both sides and it doesn't really have an effect. Human beings, we have this innate, hardwired sense of what is fair and justice. Why do we have such an innate, hardwired sense? Heaven knows the animal kingdom 
supposedly from which we came, if there's no God. Heaven knows the animal kingdom doesn't have a sense of fair and justice. The, the, the shark doesn't eat the fish one day and then the next day let the fish eat the shark just to keep things equal. Uh, that's not the way the ocean works. That's not the way the world works outside of humanity. But humanity, our children learn at a very early age to say, that's not fair. Because they're hardwired to think fair is an important concept. So fairness to me and justice, the way we're hardwired, I only understand that best if there's a God. Again, go back and listen to the lessons. I don't want to rehash them. Dignity, the dignity of humanity, that we uniquely dignify humans, that we'll eat the sausage on a stick at the tailgate party next week, but should one of us pass away, we're not going to barbecue whoever died between now and then. And, hey, give me one of them chicken legs. Well, no, that's a person leg. I'll take it anyway. I mean, we don't eat people. We have a unique dignity for humanity that's not found throughout most of the animal world. And so there's something about that that to me is indicative, just another additional reason I believe that there's a God. Now, in addition to that, we've talked about the significance in life. Um, the failures, the way we're not able to live the way we'd like to live. We've talked about uh, uh, all of these things which have indicated to me, let's see, they're, they're, there we go, that there's a God. But now we're talking about things on the other side of the scale. So we're talking about today, for example, a continuation of why is there suffering? If there's an all-powerful, all-loving God, why is there suffering? And for some people, this goes in the no-God side of the scales. I don't put it there. Some people not only put it there, but for some people, it weighs so heavily upon them that it tilts the entire scale. I don't put it there. I don't think the fact that there is suffering is an indication there's no God. I think the fact that there's suffering speaks to what kind of God there may be. And it speaks to what the world is like. But I think if we look at the Judeo-Christian understanding of suffering, we'll see why there is suffering and why it is consistent with there being a God. So before we place suffering in the scales, let's talk about it some today. Now, I read on the internet Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking has just said, listen up, NASA. If aliens call, we might not want to answer. Within the article, he says, meeting an advanced civilization could be like the Native Americans encountering Columbus. That didn't turn out so well. If there's an alien race out there, what if they come over and they conquer us or they spread bad disease to us that we're not equipped to handle or something along those lines? Stephen Hawking's saying that, that you know, he's already projecting out that there might be some people out there with less than pure and good motives. 
a civilization so advanced that they still are doing things wrong and, 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 and suffering might be the result. So let's skip through these scales here. This is before I realized I was going to bring this. So I'm going to just bend down for just a moment, if y'all don't mind, and advance. Oh, would you do this for me back there? Would you type in, please, since you're running the PowerPoint, 14, and then hit enter. And that should bring up, if you type on the keyboard, 14, enter. That should get us to slide 14. Four, beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Linda Hudgens. Spectacular. 14. So CNN World, I mean, uh, uh, BBC World has done a special on the famine in Yemen. This woman is a doctor in Yemen. And she's trying hard to help. This is a picture of one of the children in Yemen that are starving. Malnutrition. Um, Yemen is a place where because of some war and some persecution and some terrorist activities, the society is disintegrated. They don't have a lot of supplies. They don't have a lot of food. And there are a lot of people suffering, including children. And why these children are suffering when they haven't done anything wrong. They're not the terrorists. The, 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 they're, the, the, you know, the little, one of the little babies that's featured in the, the, the expose or the series or the film is a, um, a child who's lactose intolerant. And so the child would only be able to drink milk, the infant, only be able to drink milk if there was some lactose-free milk. They haven't had any for six months. So the baby can't hold down any food and the baby doesn't move and the baby just lies there and the flies buzz around the baby. And you watch it. And yes, you can cry out and say, where is this all-loving God? Or you can cry out and say, where are those loving Americans? Or those loving British who made the video? Or where are the loving Yemenis who surely care about their children? Those are very real questions that have to be answered. The answer is not, oh, the Americans don't exist. You're here. The answer is not, the British don't exist. The answer is not, oh, the Americans just don't have any love. I know you. You have love. Well, there aren't any British who have love. Oh, yes, there are. And I'm sure there are Yemeni who have love. The fact that this is going on and that we're aware of it. Now, do we want to say, yes, but we're powerless? No, we're not powerless. But there are some things that are within the realm of what we can do within our lives. And there are some things where right now some of us aren't in a position to be able to do anything about it. So if we're going to think about these things beyond it being simply a high school debate topic. Beyond it being simply a, 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 a sword that we're going to use in some fencing bout against a, uh, someone who's a believer. 
And you watch the videos and you read the snippets of people who are atheists who just go to town on this and say there must not be an all-loving, all-powerful God. And And this is their weapon. Don't just look at it at the surface. Dig down and really ask the questions that matter. Examine this topic for real. See, I see that there are three important questions at play. Question number one, what kind of God would exist to explain suffering? Doesn't mean there's not a God, but what kind of God would exist to explain suffering? And there are going to be a number of possibilities. We're going to look at it in a minute. Maybe it's just a God who doesn't care. Maybe it's a God who doesn't like you many children. Maybe it's a God who, who you know, is just fickle. Maybe it's a God who changes his mind all the time or her mind all the time. Or maybe it's a God who's so self-preoccupied that the God's just ignoring everything. Or maybe it is a Judeo-Christian God. And if so, we need to understand what kind of God the Bible says that that God is. And see if that makes reasonable, common sense to us. The second question is what kind of a world would exist to explain this suffering? What kind of a world exists where there's a famine? What kind of a world exists where a hurricane can come wipe out a city? Or a, a, a nation. Or a typhoon can just devastate and kill so many. What kind of world is this that we're in that would explain this? Is it a world of no God? Or is it a world of God? But we need to ask that question. The third question is, what kind of humanity would exist to explain suffering? What kind of people would you and I have to be? To explain this suffering. What kind of people would the terrorists be? What kind of people would the, if, if the, if the, if it's true, and I wasn't there, I'm reading press reports, but if it's true that the Saudi Arabians are the ones who bombed some humanitarian food aid, or if it's true that recently in Syria, the Russians bombed humanitarian food aid outside of Aleppo, what kind of humanity would exist to explain the suffering? What kind of humanity exists to explain the horrors of slavery or the atrocities of the Third Reich or the, 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 the devastations under Stalin or Mao Zedong? What, what kind of humanity? So those are the three questions. We've got about 30 minutes. Let's spend about 10 minutes on each one and look at them. What kind of God would exist to explain this suffering? Two weeks ago, if you were here, I talked about the idea that we say God is all powerful. We need to remember that's, as different, that, that doesn't mean God can do anything. There are some things God can't do. God cannot make a stone so big that God cannot lift it. That's just not a reasonable question. That's a nonsensical question. God cannot um, stop loving his children. It's not in his nature. It's not who he is. God cannot become an evil, wicked tyrant. Uh, uh, sinful God. 
That's not in his nature. That's not who he is. God can't die in a sense of the eternal, powerful God. Hence the resurrection of Jesus. God is not a light that can burn out. There are things that God cannot do. There are things that God cannot be. So what kind of God would exist to explain suffering? What I started with two weeks ago and what I want to finish with this morning is this idea that God is not some happy puppeteer. God is not a God who is pulling our strings, who who has made us a puppet. We're not his computer program. If we think through the implications of things, Beth, you sent me a great email on the cancer. What One of our folks sent me a great email and said, Mark, you said, look at the implications. If God cured all cancer tonight, there'd be a lot of doctors unemployed. Not necessarily. There are other diseases they could cure. You're right. But the same principle is what I'm talking about here. It's a little broader than the narrow example I did not use well. I mean, heaven forbid God would cure cancer, but not cure heart disease. I mean, if he's going to cure cancer, he might as well cure heart disease and every other disease that plagues humanity. What? How could we say he's a loving God if he only cures cancer? That's not going to help my dad. Who died of a stroke? You know, I, I, the, the loving God should cure all disease. Now where are we going to put the doctors? Well, then maybe the doctors will start working on famine. No, the loving God's going to cure all the famine. Well, maybe the doctors could become uh, nannies to take care of infants. No, God's not going to let anything bad happen to infants. Let them play in the street. God's surely not going to let a defensive little two-year-old toddler get hurt playing in the street. Well, God's not a happy puppeteer. God's not going to to find someone uh, who is bent and determined on on, uh, uh, doing something wrong and just start zapping those people with lightning. I'm not saying he can't, and I'm not saying occasionally he won't. But it's not the general rule. Or we'd all be zapped dead of lightning. God's not going to take someone who's going to cause another to suffer. And just strike them dead. Now, he might on occasion, but it's not the general rule. We'd all be struck dead. God, For God to say, I'm not going to let Mark Wilkie commit a sin. I'm not going to let Mark Wilkie do anything. Mark Wilkie, in his past, has been in a job where part of his job was firing people. That causes suffering. Even though it's the right thing to be done for the company at the time. God's not going to remove Mark Wilkie's tongue that day so that the people getting fired don't suffer. And if if he did, Mark would write it out if he was too hoarse to talk. You're fired. Mark will get it done. And love you in Jesus. He'd probably sign it that way too. <laughs> but but what we got to understand is... we. We can't turn God into the happy puppeteer 
who's going to start treating us all like his puppets where he pulls strings. That's not the kind of God that we have. Because we have a God who is able and who did make things outside of himself. See, if all we do is what God does, if he's a happy puppeteer, we're really just an extension of his hand. And he's pulling our strings. But instead, God made something truly independent of him. That doesn't mean we don't rely upon him. That doesn't mean he doesn't sustain the universe. That doesn't mean any of that. But, but it's, it, it has an existence of its own. An independent existence. God said in the beginning, God created something. We have heavens and earth. We have nature. And it's not that nature is God. We're not pantheists. Nature is something God created and nature exists, really exists. There's a God beyond nature. And so there is a nature that exists and God is not the happy puppeteer pulling the strings. We'll get to that more in a minute. But I need to add here, God didn't make evil. Some people say, yes, but we have evil and if God made everything, God made evil. No, God didn't make evil. Evil exists independently of God. Because God is what we call good. And evil is the absence or distortion or marring or defacing of what is good. If we've got lights on, if you take out the lights, there's darkness. Well, we didn't make the darkness. The darkness is what happens when you remove the light. Evil is what happens when you remove the good. When you take the good and distort it. I think one of the best examples that I can find is in food. When you eat food the right way, it is nourishing, it is healthy, it is good for your body. And yes, Dr. Bob, it is good for your soul. Dr. Bob worries that when I go on a diet, I don't feed my soul, and my soul is crying, and he wants my soul happy, so he wants me to eat donuts. I've told Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob, I need to treat my body like the temple of God, and Dr. Bob's the one who said, yeah, do you want God to have a small temple? <laughs> He's got every line you ever need if you want to get off the wagon, Okay. Food in moderation and in right measure is a good thing. But you go over and you just start eating a pizza every morning, noon, and night with the triple meats and you're going to do some damage to your body. Sexual intimacy in a marriage is a good thing. It's a marvelous thing. It's an incredible gift of God. But you take it outside of that and you've taken something that's a beautiful, good thing and the same sexual intimacy between the unmarried is something that's marring. It's not a good thing. And so for God to create sexuality between a husband and wife is, is for God to make a good thing. Well, does that mean God made evil because a husband can commit adultery on his wife? 
No, God didn't make that evil. God made a good thing. The adultery is the distortion of the good thing. You following me? So we don't say that the God exists who must have made evil. He made everything. That's just a high school debate challenge. What kind of God would exist to explain the suffering? A God who is able to make something independent of himself, though it relies upon him, but something that actually has its own rules and existence. And that includes you and me. And we're not God's computer program. People want God, for God to be the all-loving, all-powerful God that the critics insist upon for him to exist, i.e. no disease, no problems, no unfair suffering, nothing at all. For God to be that way, if you work through the dynamics of it, all of us have to be his puppets. We can't have anything else. And that's not the way the world is either. So question two, what kind of world would exist to explain suffering? Well, it's got to be a world that's outside of God. Inside God, there's the, 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 is one thing, and, and, and that's a whole different issue and worthy of lots of discussions. But God created a world outside of himself. And if you look at this world, it's a world of laws. We call it natural law. We call it physics. We call it the law of nature. We call it lots of different things. But there is a natural set of laws or a set of laws that applies to nature. God did not create a Harry Potter world of magic spells. God created a world that exists and goes on and on by itself. Look, it's in the Bible. Look at Genesis 1, the very first chapter of Jewish Christian scriptures. Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let the waters be gathered together. And then look at verse 11. And God said, there we are. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. Hmm. Is that because we can now make sesame seed bagels? Well, that might be part of it. But no, the plant yields a seed because the plant is able to reproduce. This is a world of order where things go on and on and on. Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed because it goes on and on and on. There's a natural order. There's a law of nature, each according to its kind on the earth. So the earth brought forth vegetation, each plants yielding seed according to their kind. Trees bearing fruit according to its kind. And he says the same thing with the birds and the things that he swarms. Each of them are according to their kind. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill. Because they're able to do that according to their kind. 
That's the way things are made. So we, God's created a world that has its own laws. Look, if the water gets heated and the weather is right, it's going to cause a storm. When water evaporates into the atmosphere, it's going to congeal into clouds. And when it condenses, and if the cloud's down on the ground, you're going to have fog. If the cloud dispenses that water, you're going to have rain. If you drop a magic marker, it's going to fall. We have a law of gravity. We have natural laws in this world. Sometimes gravity is a marvelous thing. Gravity is the reason I'm able to stand here and you're not having to pull me down from the ceiling. That's a good thing. But that same good thing, sometimes if I step right here, I'm going to break my leg. And that law doesn't only apply to keep me from flying into the ceiling. It also applies in ways that can hurt. That's the nature of this world. Now, this is a world we cannot control fully. It's under a curse. But these same laws that exist, this law of gravity, are laws that enable us to try to cope with some of the suffering in this world. We've learned that you can use gravity and and rules of physics and water flow and, and pumps To irrigate and create crops. I don't want to upset anybody. But through the green revolution. The use of insecticides and pesticides. And yes I shop at Whole Foods. The use of of genetically modified crops. Have greatly increased our ability to feed people. And if you can. Those are horrible to you. Then, then we need to figure out how to make them better. But the point is, these laws of nature are a gift to us just as much as they are something that are beyond our control. And so it's right for us to study. It's right for us to see. The Psalms declare that the heavens show the, the handiwork and the glory of God, and so does the world around us. And we can see God's consistency and and characteristics and, and the nature of our God in the nature around us, in the laws and things like that. But that's what we've got. And so we're under a curse in this world because of sin. I don't know if Adam and Eve, Watchman Nee says Adam and Eve must have had some incredible powers that they lost when they died that would have helped them control the environment and the world around them. I don't know about any of that kind of stuff. But I will tell you this. After they died, we're now subject to the curse of the world instead of the garden of paradise. If you look at Genesis 3, 17 through 19, this is after the fall. God says to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you violated my command, and when I told you not to eat of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This, ladies and gentlemen, is why what we do is spelled W-O-R-K instead of F-U-N. It's, it's, 
by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread until you return to the ground out of which you were taken. You're made of dust, and to dust you shall return. That's we we're in a world under a curse. None of us, according to the Bible, none of us are supposed to look at the world and say, This is paradise. This is the best God can do. We're supposed to look at it and say, what a mess. We see room for incredible potential. Oh, we can dream of how great it would be. But we see the sin, the despair, the thorns, the thistles, all of the problems in this world that exist because we're no longer in paradise. We're in a war zone. What kind of humanity would exist to explain the suffering? Third question. People who can make real choices. You and I can make choices. We're not God's puppet. God says, don't eat of the tree. We can say, okay. Or we can say, Is he looking? That's a real choice. And this idea that humanity can make real choices, I didn't make this up. This isn't a worldview I made up for my scale so I could come in here and convince you not to be an agnostic or an atheist. This isn't something that the church invented back with one of them real smart guys, Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or, you know, one of them guys. No. This concept, like the others I've talked to you about, goes back so far in antiquity that we can't put our finger on when it was originally written. It's in the book, first book of Moses. So maybe it's originally written with Moses, but Moses may have been writing down something that already been passed down. It may have been revealed by God. All I can tell you is you'll find this in the Bible, in Genesis the very beginning of it. You look at, before we go to the Elmo, go back. Let me show you so you can look it up. Compare Genesis 1, 5, 8, 10 to Genesis 2, 19. You got it? We're running late. We got to do this fast. But see if you can pick up on what happens here. Genesis 1, 5. Well, first, God said, let there be light. God saw the light was good, separated light from darkness. God what? Called the light day. What did he do to the darkness? Called it night. You see that? Then he makes the heavens and the earth. And after he makes them, God called the expanse heaven. Right? Then he makes the lands. And he calls the waters the seas. You see that? Now we're going to compare that to Genesis 2.19. God, by the way, gets to call those things whatever God wants. Because God can choose. God made real choices to call them what he chose to call them. And then as you're reading the story, Genesis 2.19 
Well, it starts in 18. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. I think this includes, by the way, just for druthers, Cro-Magnon man or the Neanderthals or all of those people too. I just think that uh, Adam could not find an appropriate spouse among those who had not been made spiritually the way Eve was and the way Adam was. Um, Brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God calls the heavens. God calls the seas. God calls the light. God calls the darkness. But then God makes man and says, you make the call. And the reason why, if we go back to the PowerPoint, is because we get to make real choices. And what we called it, that's what it was. We make choices. We're real human beings who aren't puppets. You can make decisions. You can make choices. Not just to name things. We can make moral choices. We can make a good choice. We can make a bad choice. He's not protesting. He's got to get to a flight. He warned me ahead of time. Safe travels, Mel. Good to see you, brother. Um, Look, we can make moral choices. I can choose to be a good father to my children or a bad father to my children. God leaves that choice up to me. In fact, if I want to be a good father to my children, he even says he'll help me do it. I can choose to be a good husband. I can choose to be faithful to my wife. I can choose to be unfaithful to my wife. Those are my choices. And heaven forbid, if we make the wrong choice, God doesn't always just camp out in front of us and say no. He made us able to make a choice, even if it brings suffering to others. That's the way this world is. And that's the way we are. You can see it clearly in Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they chose to eat of the tree, even though God said don't. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Adam knows his wife. They have Cain. They have Abel. And, and Cain and Abel are sacrificing to the Lord. And Cain's attitude's not right. And God's not just sitting on a cloud watching MTV into the future. He's not sitting there trying to figure out how long it's going to be until the Texas Tech Red Raiders take the field so he can root for his team. God comes down and he says to Cain, you got an attitude problem. Sin is crouching at the door. You can make a choice, Cain. You can repent and get your attitude right and you'll have a good life. Or you can choose not to and bring the suffering that comes with it. Cain chooses not to. He ignores God's warning. He kills his brother. There's suffering for his brother who dies. Suffering for the parents who have to endure it. And suffering for Cain who then bears the penalty for the rest of his life. This is a world where we really can make choices. And that doesn't make God impotent. That makes God so powerful he was able to create something that's not a puppet. 
And we can make those choices. We make moral choices. That's what exists. That's the way it is. Let's go. See, we don't like that. And people find that offensive. I'm convinced we live in an age of unlimited credit, but unaccepted responsibility. When we do something right and good, there is not enough credit that can be given to us. You know, you, hey, you did real good. I, I just want to tell you, man, I'm so blown away by that. I'm so impressed. You know, the, our natural response is talk slow. Let's, let's, let's work through this. Let's take our time. Okay, go on. I'm listening. You know, but boy, responsibility, you blew it. You made a mistake. You did something wrong. You didn't do it the way you should have done it. And our natural defense is, hey, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. Because we don't like to recognize we make moral choices. We make choices. They make a difference. They're our choices. That's the way it is. So where is the love of God in this suffering? Fair question. So where is the love of God in that Yemeni situation? It's here. God is a loving God. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verses 34 and 35, actually, look, this is, this is just mega, mega important. Mega important. This is, this is worth looking at. Jesus says, Matthew 25, 34. He's talking about Judgment Day. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. And righteous people, people who follow the Lord, are going to say to him, and this is Jesus teaching his apostles and others. The righteous will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we see you thirsty? When did you see me? We give you drink. When did we see you a stranger? When did we welcome you naked, clothe you sick, in prison and visit you? When, when? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Where is God? God comes to earth to teach us how important our decisions are. To teach us love. To teach us compassion. So I may not be able to get on the next plane to Yemeni. But I can be praying about it. And not only praying about it, I can look to elect officials who supposedly in this country represent me. I'm tired of politicians who think that they're the Lord. They're not. They work for me and you. They're our employees. We don't work for them. We get to say, I'm hiring you. I'm firing you. That's called voting. And I'm here to tell you, there are things we can do. We can work and give money. When we're giving money to the Amit Church of Amit, Louisiana, the Baptist church that was just devastated in the floods. 
which we had a chance to do this morning and we'll have another chance to do. We are answering that call. Jesus says you love you. I mean, where's the love of God? He's the one who's teaching us and telling us to get out there and do this because he's got an order in this world and part of that order we can use. It's called take what we have and give it to people who need it. There is a loving God. Isaiah 53, where's the love of God? Oh, I hate I don't have time to read this. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is just... is what the Jews called a messianic passage. They said this passage speaks of the Messiah. They were right. But it speaks of Jesus. Who is and was the Messiah. Who we... He grew up before us as a young plant, a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. Jesus wasn't winning the beauty contest. No, Jesus was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was the one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We didn't esteem him, but he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows, even as we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Hanging on a cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He paid the price for our sins. Where is God in the midst of this suffering and in the midst of this sin? He's on the cross dying for it so that it's a temporary existence and not an eternal one for us. That's the love of God. That's the all-powerful God who can conquer the sin that causes the suffering. And that's what we have in God. So don't say, well, where's the loving God in this? I'll show you where he is. He's telling us how to behave and he's modeling it and he's taking care of the eternal consequences. So that, and I don't have time for these other passages, there will come a time where he'll roll this whole world away and he'll restore something that is right and perfect and paradise again. Yeah. Yeah, I look, I'm sorry. Suffering? Oh, there may be suffering because there is no God. But to me, suffering is also very consistent with the biblical view of who God is, even if it's not the God that we might want him to be. So maybe suffering goes a little bit in both sides because it works in either model. But don't tell me that's proof against God because that's exactly what the Bible says there will be in this war zone. Here are your points for home. I'm sorry I've gone too long. Joshua 24:15. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You get to choose. You can choose whether to believe in God or not. You choose whether to serve him or not. You make real choices. I make real choices. You can choose whether to be a Christian. You can choose whether to follow God. Choose whether to follow Jesus. 
Choose whether to accept his sacrifice as the atonement for your sins. These are real choices we get to make. And goodness is a choice. I'm going to try and make it. I was hungry and you gave me food. I do want to help stop suffering. And I'm not content with how much I do. I'll confess that now. And so I'm going to I'm gonna work on it prayerfully and sitting with my sweet wife and helpmate and try to figure out how to help make a better difference than we do. Because as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I want to show the world the love of God. I don't want anybody to say, where's the love of God? I want them to say, oh, I see it in his body, his church. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless everybody who hears this message. Father, there are hearts that are still, I'm sure, wondering, why this, why that, why this, why that? Father, give them faith, give them wisdom, give them insight, give them discernment, give them the, the, the strength to, to make the right choices, Father, and then see their choices home, please. We pray these blessings in the name of Jesus, your love, our salvation.